Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Common grace is both a theological doctrine within the Reformed tradition and the title of a truly monumental book discussing the doctrine by the theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper. It is grace from God that is common to all of mankind, distinct from both the special grace by which God redeems, sanctifies, and glorifies his people, as well as the gift of creation itself. Kuyper puts it this way, Common grace issues from God, and from God come all the means that we humans must apply to oppose sin and its consequences in curse and misery. But it is God himself who leads us to find the means and instructs us how to use them. And it is precisely the latter that is forgotten. The human inventor of the electric light and electric motor is extolled, but God, who led Edison to discover it, is passed over. Today, Acton's Dan Huger talks with Jordan Baller, Senior Research Fellow and Director of Publishing at the Acton Institute, and General Editor of the 12-volume Abraham Kuyper, Collected Works in Public Theology, about Kuyper's exploration of the doctrine in his monumental work, Common Grace. The third and final volume of this work, jointly published by Lexham Press and the Acton Institute, has recently been published in English translation. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Today I'm joined by Jordan Baller, Senior Research Fellow and Director of Publishing at the Acton Institute. He is also a postdoctoral researcher in theology and economics at the Free University in Amsterdam as part of the What Good Markets Are Good For project. He is also general editor of the 12-volume Abraham Kuyper, Collected Works in Public Theology. Jordan, welcome to Acton Line, and thank you for being with us. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. Now, what is the doctrine of common grace, and what relation does it have to Kuyper's three-volume work of the same name? So the doctrine of common grace is essentially the idea, the teaching that uh, in addition to special saving grace that God offers us through the gospel, there is another kind of grace that follows the fall into sin and allows the world to continue in some way. So common grace on this understanding is different from special grace in that it uh, applies to everyone, everywhere, always, actually everything, if you understand it in its most comprehensive sense. It's not just about all people. It's about all created, all the entirety of the created order. So it differs from special grace in that sense that it's not reserved just for the elect or the members of the church or something like that. So it's it's common in that sense, and it's grace because um, it's it's a gift from God. It's a good gift from God that comes to us. Uh, and the context of it is certainly for Abraham Kuyper, uh, a post-fall reality. So that's an important um, thing to note about common grace for Kuyper is that uh, it's 
you know, there's a there's a sense in which you could talk about creation itself as a kind of a grace, and obviously that would be universal because everything that's created has been created. Um, but for Kuiper especially, he wouldn't call that common grace, at least in the same sense. This common grace has a historical context to it. It's something. It's a response. It's a divine response to something that's happened, and that's the fall into sin. And that and that context is what Kuiper sort of unravels in these volumes, and he kind of yeah. goes through the biblical narrative. Could you talk a little bit about the structure of the book and how that plays with his argument? Yeah. So. Um, Abraham Kuyper, this, this late 19th, early 20th century Dutch Reformed theologian, uh, is many things in addition to being a theologian. One of them is a journalist. And so one of his standard modes of operation was to write periodic editorials for one of the, you know, for his newspapers and then collect those into a book. So he's a kind of an entrepreneur too. He, so he'd sell you the thing in newspaper form and then sell it to you again in a book. And, you know, if there were social media, he'd sell it to you again, you know, those days as a, in his Twitter feed or something like that. So, he would have a podcast. <laughs> no doubt about it. So Common Grace originated as installments in his uh, weekly reformed newspaper, The Herald, De Herald. And uh, then he collected these together and, and they were published in the early part of the 20th century, in the first uh, decade of the 20th century in these three volumes, and they're massive. So there's there's three volumes. Uh, the first volume is focused on a kind of biblical exposition and a biblical grounding of the, of the doctrine, and we can say more about that in a minute. The second volume is focused on a kind of systematic theological exposition of the, of the, of the doctrine, and the third volume is more the kind of concrete practical application where the implications for this doctrine for our understanding of social life most broadly. So that's the structure of his argument. Um, these are in the context of the 12-volume series for of, of Abraham Kuyper that we've done. These are the three largest volumes on their own. Uh, the second volume of the three is the largest of the three. Um, so, you know, it's something like 2,000 pages between the three volumes, something like so in translation. So these are truly massive works. Um, and and yet they're accessible and significant. And there's a reason he spent so much time on this this topic. Yeah. Now, now there, what what's the what's the problem that Kuiper sees in Reformed theology that he's that he's trying to solve through through expositing this doctrine? So Kuiper's uh, explanation of what's going on with with why this this doctrine needs 2,000 pages. Part of it is he sees uh, a lacuna in the Reformed tradition. So there's something missing. Now, he's very careful to ground the doctrine itself in the Reformed tradition. So he doesn't want to say, here's some new thing that the Reformed tradition has never had that I'm bringing to it. So in that sense, he doesn't, wa he, he doesn't want to claim to be a radical innovator. Instead, his argument goes something like this. Uh, Here's a doctrine that was affirmed right away in the Reformation, including by figures like John Calvin. Here's a doctrine that got uh, confessional articulation and was formally a part of the Reformed tradition in something like the Canons of Dort in the early part of the 17th century. And yet, in the successive generations and centuries now of theologians, no one has spent very much time talking about it. They may say it exists. They may, you know, in the systematic theologies, they may give a, 
a, a, a set of distinctions for grace and say there's a special grace and a general grace and then blah, blah, and go, but move on and only want to talk about special grace or something like that. So it's, it's there in the Reformed tradition, but it's been missing in, in the sense of getting the attention it deserves. Um, and it's especially salient for Kuiper for a lot of reasons, but one of the key ones is that he's living in an important period of transition you know, now 400 years on from the Reformation, where technological advance is happening, early forms of globalization are happening, um, the society is diversifying, there's more plural, you know, plurality in the world that you're encountering through media and various kinds, but also at home for him in the Netherlands. So it, it functions as a kind of doctrine to explain um, – on the, the basis on which we should live in common with non-Christians is one way to think about it. What's going on in the world uh, that God, is, you know, it's his world, all of it's his world. Kuiper is famous for these kinds of cosmic and comprehensive claims about the lordship of Christ. So what is God doing outside of the realm of the, of the elect, we could say, from a very Calvinistic perspective? What, what is God doing outside of the realm, say, of the institutional church or the holy as we would traditionally think about it. Is he acting in the world or is it all just, you know, as bad as it could possibly be? What's going on? And that's where the, that's where the doctrine of common grace fits in part for Kuiper. Yeah. So there's, so there's this world context and Kuiper's very much part of this as, as a statesman. He one another volume in this series is on Islam where he gives his reflections and engagement with Islam and, and some of the, and some of the actually broader Christian world, even outside the Islamic world or the broader non-Christian world outside of the Islamic world. And then in the Netherlands also, there are of course Roman Catholics mm-hmm. and there are uh, secular liberals. There are socialists and these people are all also active in the political arena that Kuiper's active in as well. And is, is this, can this be thought of as a way to try to like, this is a way to try to theologically ground how those interactions happen. Yeah, I think that's right. So one of the things, one, one of the ways Kuiper will explain what common grace is, is this an explanatory doctrine or explain it, it has an explanatory function. So we encounter this phenomenon in our own experience where what we confess about the spirit's role in regeneration uh, and, and the, the call to holiness that we, you know, that God communicates to his church, and yet we encounter disappointing realities, let's put it that way, to put it mildly, yeah. you know, uh, in those contexts. So there's a sense in which the church, in our experience, doesn't measure up to what we confess it ought to be. And then on the other hand, we say these things about the pagans and the heathens and the socialists and the left or whatever you want to say out there, the world, uh, we confess certain things about them. They're unregenerate. They can do no good, right? These sorts of things will come, will, will be articulated. And yet our experience is not everything is horrible. <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. things aren't as bad as they seem like they should be. Yeah. Right, so there's some good in the world. So this is partly what's going on here. Is Kuiper, on the one hand, doctrinally wants to explain, well, you know, there's this connection between nature, uh, created nature, and, and fallen human nature, and saving grace, such that sanctification is an ongoing process, and the old Adam is not completely conquered until the eschaton, and things like that. So that explains in part why things aren't as good in the church as they should be. 
And yet, and then on the other hand, the doctrine of common grace helps explain too why there's any good in the world that we clearly perceive. I mean, there's maybe not good in some absolute sense, mm-hmm. but if you make distinctions about types of good and there's very clearly good in some sense. So how do we explain that theologically? That's part of what's going on. Yeah. There are moral exemplars in the world outside of the church. There are great works of art. Yeah. There there's are, genius, like yeah. objective genius. So, you know, yeah, certainly within a limited sense, you could talk about civic morality. You could talk about uh, pagan virtues and things like that. Um but it's even not really primarily about morality. It is to some extent for Kuiper, but it's not just, say, reducible to a moral understanding of the natural law. So I would say, for example, a doctrine of natural law in the Reformed tradition, a traditional understanding of it, it would, would be an art, in manifestation of common grace. A particular right? The work instance. of God to restrain through conscience the behavior of the unregenerate is an expression of common grace. It's not identical, say, to natural law. So natural law would be a form that common grace comes that comes to the world. Yeah. And now, now there, there's, there's controversy associated with this idea um, in the Reformed tradition. Um, what's the nature of that controversy? I mean, this thing, this, this offers, this doctrine has a great deal of explanatory power mm-hmm. about our personal experience. Kuiper is very careful in biblically grounding this in the first volume, but but there's still there, there was still a lot of pushback at the time and remains in, in some reform circles today to this notion. Yeah, it's been a controversial doctrine for sure. There's no doubt about it. Part of it do, has to do, I think, with the thing that we were just talking about, which is that it provides a kind of lens or a framework for engaging positively and even constructively with people outside of the covenant community, um, which to certain kinds of uh, Christian communities is antithetical to their whole Mm self-understanding, that we need to separate ourselves from the world, you know, and all this. So there's that element of it that uh, this this doctrine is a danger to. So one very sharp criticism that uh, comes... Is, is that uh, this doesn't, you know, Christianize the world. This doctrine, you know, makes the church worldly. Uh, it makes the church prone to cultural accommodation and to basically um, not live up to its its calling as a special community, as a gathered community. Um, so part of it's that, that there's this sense of purity or isolation or, um, you know, one of Kuiper's big targets is Anabaptists, at least in a kind of caricatured sense, but even, you know, that they're just happy having a book in a nook and being left to themselves and they don't want to be associated with the world. Uh, and Kuiper's response to that is, no, God calls us to be agents of disciple, his disciples in the world. So it's, it's not a, you know, it's not a matter of, of being faithful by withdrawing. Um, and common grace is one of these things that helps us understand how we can live in the context of, of the world and yet not ideally be accommodated to it. Obviously, there's going to be temptations and so on. Um, that other danger, though, you know, the, the one na- with danger is isolation, withdrawal. The other danger is accommodation. And um, Kuiper is very sensitive to that even from the beginning. So you'll find very clear expositions that this doctrine, it's an abuse of this doctrine – to um, de-emphasize, you know, 
uh, the rough edges of the gospel or something like that. It's an abuse of this doctrine to engage in licentiousness and worldly behavior because, oh, well, it's common grace or something like that. So um, I don't mean to say that criticisms of this doctrine are all necessarily uh, misguided or malintentioned or anything like that. No, there are very legitimate ways in which this doctrine can and has historically been abused and misused. At the same time, it doesn't mean that there's no truth to the reality of common grace in the world. So it's it's an argument certainly against abuse and it's an argument for proper understanding and um, in that sense, uh, proper use of the doctrine um, and warning against its abuse. We've, we've talked about some of these distinctions earlier, the distinctions between the creation itself, between common grace and between special grace. And Kuiper is very careful to distinguish these. Um, and, that's, and that's part of that that understanding. Now, now, how does Kuiper's understanding of common grace fit into his broader conception as a theologian, and particularly as, as, as a sort of as, as a sort of public theologian? So, I think uh, common grace f- helps Kuiper ground his his public activity and his public discipleship. You could say, and public theolo- public theology wasn't say a discipline at that time, but I mean he's. He's an exemplar of, of what public theology is, certainly from the Reformed tradition's case. So um, it can help him make distinctions about the kinds of political and public activity that he, he thinks he's, he should be engaging in and make the kinds of distinctions that he thinks need to be made to do that faithfully. So, for example, um, he'll make the point that on certain questions of, say, social ethics or public policy even, that the, the view of the human person uh, that's confessed by the Reformed and the Roman Catholics is not a, a key point of departure, that there's basic agreement there and that we should be co-belligerents uh, and there should be a kind of practical ecumenical alliance between these two in the public square for this reason. You know, maybe it's school choice or uh, maybe it has to do with uh, ethical issues in terms of public policy or something like that. That, that uh, you know, instead of thinking very narrowly and tribally about the reformed, um, there are – there's good in the world that we can work with others to, to help be good stewards of and to protect and to promote. Um, so that's part of what's going on with Kuiper and Common Grace is it's, it's a groundwork for public engagement and um, – collaboration. It's funny in Common Grace, you know, um, so even though there's this positive kind of ecumenical, I, I think of ecumenical as positive generally. I know many audio, many people listening to this podcast maybe don't, yeah. but um, again, it's an abuse of ecumenical when it's not a good thing. Uh, so for Kuiper, you know, on the one hand, speak very positively about the prospects for, say, working with Roman Catholics to solve the problem of poverty and fight socialism and materialism and uh, uh, atomistic individualism and things like this. Uh, but even in the context there, then he'll turn around and in the next section, he's going to talk about nature and grace and say, oh, well, Bellarmine's horrible, you yeah. know, and be very strongly poli- – so in that sense, it's not about um, softening the rough edges of distinctive, you know, teachings of the Reformed faith. It's about properly contextualizing those and say, well, here's where we agree. Here's where we disagree. Uh, these disagreements are really, really important in this area. These disagreements are actually not that important. These agreements are really important in this area, but they don't mean that the disagreements that we have in this other area aren't salient either. So part of it's a discernment kind of a 
uh, of an exercise for Kuiper. Um, yeah, so that's that's part of what's going on. Yeah, and when when you talk about these different areas, this is one of the other things that Kuiper is very known for: is this notion of sphere sovereignty. Mm-hmm. How do those two things relate? This doctrine of common grace and the sphere sovereignty, because particularly in the application, I think there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. So okay. Sphere sovereignty is Kuiper's understanding that God in creation now, yes. so not as a post-fall reality, but in creation has deigned, decided to uh, create in such a way that there's all kinds of diversity inherent in the created order, uh, including but not limited to the human race, and that within the context of humanity, there are all kinds of different gifts and orientations and dispositions uh, and callings, you could say, um, that are given to people, just as as qua people, qua humans. Mm-hmm. So uh, these come to expression in all kinds of different relationships and formalized relationships, uh, institutions you could call them, associations, whatever. Um, and each one of these is got its its marching orders in a way, and its valor its validation directly from God, its authorization directly from God because he created it to be that way. So you can think about marriage in this sense. Uh, Marriage is its own institution. It's not just a human construct, even if there are elements of positive law and custom that go along with it. It's not reducible to those things. God has willed marriage as a product of his created order. So it's a sovereign sphere for Kuiper because it's got um, a, a delimitation in terms of you know, what it covers, mm-hmm. uh, but it's got direct – a law that governs its life that's given directly by the lawgiver, you could say, by the sovereign. Mm-hmm. Now, that works itself out in the context of secondary causes like fathers and mothers and siblings and grandparents and all the you know all the complex relationships that actually form, say, a family. Um, but for, for Kuiper, it's very clear that those, those – all that diversity of relationships and dynamics – are embedded in the created order and they come to manifestation as people live in history. So uh, that's just a given of creation for Kuiper and it's very important for him. And in fact, the distinction between man and male and female right at the beginning for him is a kind of in nuce, you know, endorsement of all the kinds of good diversity that you'll come, all the multiformity that you'll, you'll see later throughout human history. Now, common grace in the context of sin, uh, allows that to continue to exist. So there's a few things that common grace actually does. One thing is, you know, you could you could understand where you've got this radical fall into sin from humanity that's the the representative not just of all the humans that are going to come later, but in a sense the cosmos. There's this microcosmic dimension to humanity. And God could have said justly, you know, this stuff all need I'm going to throw into the, the dustbin, basically, mm-hmm. right? Common grace is God saying, no, I'm going to allow things to continue to exist in the face of this radical fall. So that's one thing that, that common grace does is allow anything to exist at all anymore once we've, we've got sin. Well, the second thing it does is keep things from being as bad as they would otherwise be. So you can imagine God saying, yeah, I'll give you existence, which is good, but I'm not going to check the effects of sin in any way. Uh, and the closest we get to that, at least in the biblical narrative that Kuiper understands, is, is the times right before the flood. Yeah. That's 
And in fact, the Noahic covenant is for Kuiper the paradigmatic covenant of common grace. So that's where he starts his biblical. It doesn't start it with Adam. Mm-hmm. He starts it with Noah and works kind of backwards to Adam to a more created anthropology. But so that's the other thing it does is it stops things from being as horrible as they might otherwise have been. And then on the other side, it allows actual good to continue and be produced even outside of Christian circles. And this is where sphere sovereignty still is. So there are sovereign spheres even among the non-Christians because they're embedded in creation and they're expressions of humanity as humanity, not as regenerated humanity. So the state would be an, an excellent example of a sphere that exists, you know, the Lutheran confession and the Reformed confession that government exists also among the pagan. Well, that's an expression of common grace, that there's some kind of political order that exists even among non-Christians. And so um, that's sort of how the, you know, one way in which those two relate is common grace allows sphere sovereignty in the context of all exist of existence to continue to exist and to continue to provide some guidance and positive framework for cultural development. What, that, that Noah point is is key. So I want I want to circle back to this because what happens is is there is there is evil unbound throughout the earth. God brings the flood, and the covenant with Noah is that is that he will never again destroy all the earth. Yeah. Um, and, and with water, at least. Yeah, <laughs> with water. At the, least. the meteors, the yeah. meteor of death is still coming. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but there's right. there's a way in which also that's that's a reestablishment not only of the preservation of existence of the survival of the human race as individual persons, but the survival of family, the survival of nations, the survival of all of these orders that Kuiper thinks are sort of embedded in in what it is to be um, to be a person. Right. And, and, and the survival of morality too, right? So you've got the Noahide commandments. Mm-hmm. The, the, that's part of the covenant. So it's, I mean, people will talk, the distinction, the covenantal distinctions are really interesting and there's an important history there. But, um, you know, they'll talk about the covenant with Noah or the Noahic covenant as a, as a general covenant mm-hmm. because it applies to everything. And an unconditional covenant because it's not as if there's anything that you can expect animals to do to uphold the covenant of this general covenant. There's no conditions to it. So, um, and yes, all of these things are preserved. All of these created intentions, all of these created possibilities that God embedded in the original creation are, in a sense, preserved on that ark and communicated to, the, to Noah's posterity historically afterwards. So. The different institutions, all still yet, all of this kind of created diversity that hasn't come to expression yet, all of these discoveries that we're that humans are going to make about the world and the way that things works, all of these inventions that are going to come about, uh, all of the art that's going to be produced, they're all still there in, in some sense federally or seminally or whatever representatively uh, present on the ark. And so that's that's in that that's why for Kuiper this is a, a paradigmatic common grace covenant because it's preserving. Uh, all of these things that otherwise would have been lost in the fall. Mm-hmm. Kuiper got me to read those sections after about the genealogies that we often our right. gla- eyes glaze over. But embedded in those genealogies after that are the rise of so many things, music, mm-hmm. metallurgy, all of these sorts of things that we think part and parcel of civilization and culture. Um, that yeah. emerged directly out of the ark and its descendants. Right. So let me let me say one of the most uh, 
significant parts of the of the Common Grace series for me that Kuiper Kuiper did, and this this speaks to his. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's a kind of a of genius that um, he can make you even as say a professional academic theologian who's got all kinds of you know postgraduate degrees and studied this for a long time. He has a way of making something that if somebody had asked you, hey, here's Proposition X or Y, do you affirm it? Oh, yeah, sure, that's true. But he has a way of making it true to you in a way that you hadn't thought of before, right? So and it relates directly to what you were just saying. So some of the first instances of common grace that, that Kuiper talks about, yes, the Noahic Covenant is absolutely central for him, but it's the curse and the promise after the fall where actually common grace comes to its first historical expression. Uh, so if you think about the way this is in many Bibles, right, that chapter of Genesis is, or section of that chapter is headed the curse. Mm-hmm. But if you read through it and it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff that's being promised <laughs> that's going to happen. Uh, there's blessings in each one of those. So when God talks to Eve and says, you know, all this bad stuff is going to happen, you're going to have children is the prop is the promise. It's got a caveat that it's going to be in, you know, the context of great suffering and pain, but you're going to have children. Uh, in the context of his, of the curse of Adam, uh, you're going to toil. It's going to be troublesome and laborious and you're going to suffer, but you will have bread. And Kuiper makes, I think of, it's just amazing how he, he talks about those realities because we so often are just focused on how horrible thing is, things are. And that's part of fallen human nature, I guess, is to you know, complain about our lot. I'm, you, know, you took us away from Egypt and I'm super hungry and thirsty now. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you took us out of the Garden of Eden and I don't, you know, all this other stuff's going to happen. And yet, in the, con- in the face of such radical rebellion and these consequences, he promises Adam and Eve and all of their posterity – you're going to have children and you're going to have food. You know, I'm going to continue to preserve you. And so, yeah, when we're reading these genealogies, it's like, okay, here's some strange named person and whatever. It's almost like trivia or you skip those parts or it's boring. But every one of those represents covenant faithfulness by God to say, I said you're going to have children and here's another generation. Here's another generation. Here's another generation. Here are all these generations that I've continued to preserve and allow to c- come forth uh, in the context of your, you know, radical rebellion against me. Um, what a powerful uh, expression of divine grace. Absolutely. Now, this has been great because we've brought it back to the biblical narrative that a lot of people from a lot of different faith traditions share. Now, what is, what's the contribution of common grace to Christian social thought as a whole? What would a Roman Catholic, an mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodox, someone who's just broadly evangelical, what, what contribution is there? What familiarities might they recognize in another, in another form? Yeah, so I think uh, Kuiper was correct that uh, – it's an orthodox with a small o part of the Reformed tradition to talk about common grace in this sense. I'm not saying everything he says about common grace is, you know, correct or a proper articulation of it or whatever. But he's right that this doctrine itself is part and parcel of the Reformed tradition and it had not really been focused on until his day. 
it fills a lacuna in the sense that uh, Roman Catholics had been struggling, continue to struggle and dealing and wrestling with the problem of nature and grace for a long time. And this is essentially a reformed doctrine of the relationship between created nature and saving grace. That's what common grace is uh, for Kuiper. And so in that sense, it's a model to other traditions that also maybe haven't done it as well or, uh, you know, I'm not telling what people what they need to do, but, you know, I think a Lutheran could look at this and say, huh, you know, maybe there's a place for some analogous doctrine in, in the development of our systematic theology and our moral theology that needs to be uh, taken up. And certainly, again, Roman Catholics have done it where they were doing it before Kuiper. They've continued to do it after. And in some sense, there's been di fruitful dialogue between the two to help clarify the points of division and agreement. Um, so in that sense, I think it, it's, it stands as a model and it's, a, it's kind of the necessary work to do in order to produce a principled and authentic and genuine uh, school or tradition of social thought from a particular religious tradition or at least Christian tradition. So I mean it's, it's really hard I think to have an authentic and historically but also doctrinally rooted and grounded uh, reformed social ethics without – an articulation of common grace or it's going to be – it's going to reject the doctrine of common grace and look quite different in terms of its conclusions. Yeah. So uh, that gets back to the part of the controversy, right, is, is um, how helpful is this doctrine, how necessary is it? And from my perspective, it stands as a kind of a model. And first of all, if you're, if you're convinced that the Bible teaches it, then you have to, you know, you have to, you have to include it in your systematic somehow. Um, but not just as a kind of one paragraph thing. It's actually – I think Kuiper was prescient in the sense that he understood that as more and more diversity and pluriformity is coming to expression or at least we're confronted with it in, in the world now. Uh, and it's just a – it's a fact that of, – of reality nowadays where it wasn't, you know, if you lived in a hamlet, you know, in central Germany or something like that. Um, it, it's much more of a salient and necessary doctrine to have the proper hold of than it maybe was in the in, in a much more narrower world or a world that didn't have as much exposure to, to all these kinds of diversity and so on. So, um, yeah, I think Kuiper was prescient. I do think it has something to teach us uh, today yet, then, which is partly why, you know, a ma major reason that we've brought it into translation. Um, it's also helpful for correcting things. So, you know, common grace has been a controversial thing. Uh, Ever since Kuiper propounded it, uh, it's led to church splits. It's led to theological, you know, disputes. It's led to uh, at least certain forms of it have led to uh, uh, unwholesome and uh, unrighteous accommodation of cultures. So, you know, there's a version of common grace that doesn't do justice to the ongoing reality of sin uh, that becomes a kind of transformationalist excess that thinks that we can just go out and and uh, usher in the kingdom ourselves and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So uh, in that sense, getting back to Kuiper himself helps us understand the historical, what he actually said, um, what it actually, what he meant it to mean, and then what later versions of it, if they've departed or corrected or further elucidated the doctrine helpfully or unhelpfully how all that fits in. And so it's, it's, it, we don't have a, we, you can't have an excuse to have a caricature of Kuiper and common grace anymore where um, if all you had heard was Kuiper and, you know, transforming the world to God's kingdom or something like that, you could be led down some pretty dangerous paths. 
Now, this was over a decade ago when a lot of these projects were beginning and I was talking to you about this and I started asking you all these questions, the sort of questions that I'm asking you now. And you've done very well to answer them. And, and I thank you so much for that. But you told me again and again, you got to read Kuiper. Read Kuiper. And in our, in our discussion about how you feel that he serves as a model of Christian social thought, I think that's true because it's only in reading him that you can see not only his answers but the way he formulates questions, questions that are very pertinent to our time, and then his method to go about exploring those. So there's value in Kuiper even if you disagree with his conclusions. He's a very rigorous thinker, a very careful thinker, and somebody who really fought to bring every thought captive Mm -hmm. to the scriptures and to the broader theological tradition. Jordan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Dan. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Eric Cohn.